All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 43, for October 2022. Tick-tock, clocks, watches, and Laurel Hill, part one. National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836, and it remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869, and it has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. Today, I am going to talk about timekeeping in Philadelphia, from sundials and hourglasses to the clock in Independence Hall. Philadelphia has had skilled clock and watchmakers since colonial times. Henry Voigt built a special clock for Thomas Jefferson that he used for his astronomical experiments until the day that he died. You can see clocks by Voigt both at Monticello and in the U.S. Senate. Isaiah Lukens not only built clocks that can be seen at the Athenaeum and the Germantown City Hall, but he also built an air gun that may have been used by Lewis and Clark during their expedition. And Henry Sabert took the money left him by his father Adam and had a clock and a bell built for Independence Hall for the 1876 centennial celebration. Almost 150 years later, they still stand. And as usual, I bit off more than I can chew, so I will not have time to talk about railroad watches, Bailey Banks and Biddle, the clocks in City Hall, Matthias Baldwin, who started out as a jeweler before he started making locomotives. And I even wanted to talk about a special pocket watch left by the eccentric Hugh Craig Jr. to his beloved First City Troop. That means at some time there will be a TikTok clock and watch part two of All Bones Considered. But that's what you're going to hear today on this episode of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. TikTok clocks watches and Laurel Hill part one. Did William Penn own a pocket watch? 
How did people tell time in colonial America? How does a grandfather clock work? How long has there been a clock on Independence Hall? Where did it come from? Those were only a few of the questions that I asked myself when I started exploring this topic of clockmakers and watchmakers in Philadelphia who were interred at Laurel Hill. Nowadays, it is hard to conceive of a time, well, without time. We're locked into our alarm clock, to the starting time of a play, to a bus or a train schedule, or the amount of time that we spend exercising, or the time we're going to meet someone at the Eagle before heading to dinner and a live concert. Even if you no longer wear a watch or you forgot your cell phone, there are plenty of places in Center City where you can see what time it is. For instance, the clocks on the four sides of City Hall Tower are visible for more than a mile in any direction. From 1894 to 1908, that clock was actually on the tallest building in the world. Early timekeepers were essentially astronomers. Look at the position of the sun in the sky. Estimate how much daylight you have left. The earliest sundials known from the archaeological record are shadow clocks from ancient Egyptian and Babylonian astronomy around 1500 BCE. Presumably, humans were telling time from shadow lengths at an even earlier date, but this is hard to verify. In roughly 700 BCE, the Old Testament describes a sundial, the Dial of Ahaz, mentioned in 2 Kings 2011. And Hezekiah answered, It is a light thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. Nay, but let the shadow return backward 10 degrees. And Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward, by which it had gone down in the Dial of Ahaz. Sundials indicate the time by casting a shadow or throwing light onto a surface known as a dial face or dial plate, which is usually a flat plane. It can also be the inner or outer surface of a sphere, a cylinder, cone, helix, or some other shape. The time is indicated where a shadow or light falls on the dial face, which is usually inscribed with hour lines. Although usually straight, these hour lines may also be curved, depending on the design of the sundial. In some designs, you may need to know the date to determine the correct time. There may be multiple sets of hour lines for different months, or there may be mechanisms for setting or calculating the month. If the dial face offers other data, such as the horizon, the equator, or the tropics, that information is called the sundial furniture. Now, the entire object that casts a shadow or light onto the dial face is known as the sundial's gnomon, G-N-O-M-O-N. That's from the Greek. It means one that knows. However, it is usually only an edge of the gnomon that is used to determine the time. This edge is known as the sundial's style, which is usually aligned parallel to the axis of the celestial sphere, and therefore is aligned with the local geographical meridian. In some sundial designs, only a point-like feature, such as the tip of the style, is used to determine the time and date. This point-like feature is known as the sundial's notice. And some sundials use both a style and a notice to determine the time and the date. 
A sundial at a particular latitude in one hemisphere must be reversed to be used at the opposite latitude in the other hemisphere. A vertical direct south sundial in the northern hemisphere becomes a vertical direct north dial in the southern hemisphere. To position a horizontal sundial correctly, you have to find true north or south. The gnomon, set to the correct latitude, has to point to the true south in the southern hemisphere, as in the northern hemisphere it has to point to the true north. The hour numbers also run in opposite directions, so on a horizontal dial they run counterclockwise rather than clockwise. Now, there are still many sundials in Philadelphia. There's a vertical one in Rittenhouse Square. There's a whimsical one held by the god Pan. It's near the library on the Penn campus. That was done by sculptor Beatrice Fenton. There's an Alexander Sterling Calder sundial at the Horticulture Center in Fairmount Park. An abstract ground-based vertical sundial at the East Passiunk Community Center at 11th and Mifflin and several others. Now the biggest sundial in the city is one you may not know about. It's the city itself on Philly Henge. Yearly at sunrise on March 1st and October 12th or at sunset on September 5th and April 5th, the sun aligns perfectly to shine uninterrupted down Market Street from east or west. The sculptors Beatrice Fenton and Alexander Sterling Calder are interred at Laurel Hill West. The inaccuracies of the sundial needed to be improved upon. The first changes seem to come from the various religious orders trying to keep their monks and nuns in time for their seven-time daily gatherings for prayer. Matins, derived from the word matutin, meaning belonging to the morning, late at night or at midnight. Louds, at 3 a.m. or at dawn. Premate, around 6 a.m. Terce, around 9 a.m., three hours after dawn. Sext, at midday, six hours after dawn. None, around 3 p.m. or nine hours after dawn. Vespers, around 6 p.m. or after dinner and complete around 9 p.m. or before bed to complete the day. Villagers who lived near the monasteries or convents would gauge time by the bells used to call people to prayer. So what did people use for timekeeping in places where the sun didn't always shine? Water clocks or klepsydra from the ancient Greek klepto to steal and hydor water, in other words water thieves. A water clock measures time through the regulated flow of liquid into, that's the inflow type, or out from, that's the outflow type, of a vessel. The amount is then measured. The bowl-shaped outflow is the simplest form of a water clock. It existed in Babylon, Egypt, and Persia around the 16th century BCE. Water clocks were also used in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, and they were described by technical writers like Tisibius and Vitruvius. Some early clepsydrae were used as stopwatches at Athenian brothels to keep customers from overstaying their time. In the early 3rd century BCE, Greek physician Herophilus used a portable clepsydra during his house visits in Alexandria to measure the patient's pulse beats. When people saw how well the flow of water could help determine time, 
The next step was an hourglass. Two glass bulbs connected vertically by a narrow neck that allows a regulated flow of sand or another fine substance from the upper bulb to the lower one. Materials used other than sand include powdered marble, tin and lead oxides, and pulverized burnt eggshells. Typically, the upper and lower bulbs are the same size, so the hourglass measures the same amount of time regardless of orientation. The specific duration of time measured is determined by the quantity and coarseness of the particulate matter, the bulb size, and the neck width. The first documented hourglass was described in the 8th century AD. During early days of global exploration, marine sand glasses were very popular and far more accurate than clepsydra, which were easily affected by the movement of the ocean. For instance, during Ferdinand Magellan's trip around the globe from 1519 to 1522, there were 18 hourglasses from Barcelona in the ship's inventory. It was the job of a ship's page to turn the hourglasses and provide the times for the ship's log. Every time the page turned the hourglass, he rang the ship's bell every 30 minutes from one to eight bells during a four-hour watch shift. Six shifts in 24 hours. Noon was the reference time for navigation, which did not depend on the glass, as the sun would be at its zenith. Hourglasses were commonly used in churches, homes, and workplaces to measure sermons, cooking time, time spent on breaks from labor. Because they were being used for more everyday tasks, the hourglass began to shrink. Smaller models were more practical, very popular as they made timing more discreet. Clock towers also date back to antiquity. The earliest clock tower was the Tower of the Winds in Athens, created in the first century BCE during the period of Roman Greece. The exterior featured eight sundials, and the interior featured a clepsydra driven by water coming down from the Acropolis. The first truly mechanical clock appeared sometime in the last decades of the 13th century. Most likely it was through the monastic environment. In England, a clock was put up in a tower, the medieval precursor to Big Ben at Westminster in 1288. Four years later, a clock was put up in Canterbury Cathedral. The oldest surviving turret clock, formerly part of a clock tower in Europe, is the Salisbury Cathedral clock, which was completed in 13. Bell towers, which had started about 400 AD, were commonplace by the 11th century. Perhaps the most famous European bell tower is the so-called Leaning Tower of Pisa, which started to lean during its 12th century construction. A freestanding bell tower is called a campanile, and a belfry is the substructure that houses the bell and the ringers. In Christianity, Many churches ring their church bells from bell towers at 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. to summon the Christian faithful to recite the Lord's Prayer. Other Catholic Christian churches ring their bells at 6 a.m., noon, and 6 p.m. to call the faithful to recite the Angelus, a prayer in honor of the incarnation of God. By the mid-14th century, most towns had at least one clock, 
which allowed people to regulate working hours and allowed craftsmen to charge by the hour. The tower clock in the church or town hall was made possible by the invention of escapement and the verge and foliot mechanism. An escapement is a mechanical linkage in a clock that gives impulses to the timekeeping element and periodically releases the gear train to move forward, advancing the clock's hands. The impulse action transferred energy to the clock's timekeeping element, initially a foliot or balance wheel, to replace the energy lost to friction during its cycle and keep the timekeeper oscillating. The escapement was driven by force from a suspended weight transmitted through the timepiece's gear train. Each swing of the balance wheel released a tooth of the escapement's escape wheel, which allowed the clock's gear train to advance or escape by a fixed amount. This regular periodic advancement moved the clock's hands forward at a steady rate. At the same time, the tooth gave the timekeeping element a push before another tooth caught on the escapement's pallet, returning the escapement to its locked state. The sudden stopping of the escapement's tooth is what generates the characteristic ticking sound heard in operating mechanical clocks and watches. Now, it was this verge and foliot mechanism that kept tower clocks ticking for the next 300 years. Another advancement was an invention by Peter Henlein, a German locksmith from Nuremberg, sometime between 1500 and 1510. Henlein created spring-powered clocks. Replacing the heavy drive weights resulted in smaller and more portable clocks and watches. Henlein nicknamed his clocks Nuremberg Eggs. Although they slowed down as the mainspring unwound, they were popular among wealthy individuals because of their size and because they could be placed on a shelf or a table instead of hung from a wall. These were the first portable timepieces, but they only had our hands. Clocks had no glass protection during this time. That didn't happen until the 17th century. Still, Henlein's advances in design were precursors to truly accurate timekeeping. Galileo was the first person to describe a pendulum clock, but he was almost blind when he described it to his son around 1640, and both he and his son died before they could build the first pendulum clock. That honor goes to Dutch physicist, mathematician, engineer, astronomer, and inventor Christian Huygens in 1656. The introduction of the pendulum increased the accuracy of clocks enormously, cutting the margin of error from 15 minutes today to a mere 15 seconds per day. The initial pendulum swing was 80 to 100 degrees, but the invention of an anchor escapement by Robert Hooke in the late 1850s allowed reduction of the swing to four to six degrees. The narrow pendulum swing allowed the clock's case to accommodate longer, slower pendulums, which needed less power and caused less wear on the movement. It was determined that a pendulum roughly one meter long had a period of one second. Now, some tower clocks, like Big Ben, or for that matter, the clock on Independence Hall, 
use a two-second pendulum, which is four meters long. Long, narrow cases, usually six to ten feet tall, were built around these inner workings and were usually just wide enough to contain the swinging pendulum and the weight suspended by either cables or chains hidden behind a waist door. One winding would last for eight days. Increasing accuracy allowed a minute hand to be added to the clock faces beginning around 1690. The faces were behind a hood door. It was in the early 1800s that clockmakers started making the transition from Roman numerals to Arabic numerals. The term grandfather's clock, so familiar today, did not actually become popular until the publication of a song by that name in 1876. It was written by American composer Henry Clay Work, who had also written Marching Through Georgia. If you have verges and foliots and pendulums and escapements sort of dancing through your head right now, I don't blame you. If you are in a place and a time where it is convenient, stop the podcast, go to YouTube. There are several excellent instructional films on how all of these elements work together. And when you're finished, come back and I will talk about some of the first clocks in colonial Philadelphia. I can't talk about Philadelphia clockmakers without mentioning a few who lived and died before Laurel Hill was established in 1836, including two father and son teams. Now, before 1750, most clockmakers in the colonies were trained in England. And although English Quakers dominated Philadelphia, William Penn's holy experiment had attracted tens of thousands of settlers from Germany, Switzerland, and Ireland. These immigrants included many skilled artisans from Northern Europe, including clockmakers. One of the earliest clocks to make its way to Philadelphia region was the Dial of Ahaz, named after the King of Judah, who supposedly invented the sundial in the 8th century BCE. The Ahaz sundial was made in Germany in 1578. It arrived here sometime before 1700 with a mystical religious group known as the Pietists, or the Hermits of the Ridge. They were led by Johannes Kelpius, 1667 to 1708. 
He arrived in 1694 and settled in Germantown. An entire school of clockmakers trained under pietist Christopher Witt, who began making clocks in Germantown as early as 1706. The claim for the first clock built in America probably goes to Philadelphian Samuel Bispam in 1695. Businesses and government began to realize the advantage of using clocks to simplify meeting times and to regulate working hours. The first public clock in Philadelphia was housed in the old courthouse, built in 1710 at Market and 2nd Street. It was made by English immigrant Peter Stretch, 1670-1746, and it told, or possibly told, T-O-L-L-E-D, the time, by ringing a bell. Stretch, who is interred at Friends Arch Street Meeting House, had a shop at the southeast corner of Front and Chestnut. It was also known as the Sign of the Dial, and eventually as Peter Stretch's Corner. Stretch is sometimes incorrectly credited with building the first state house clock in 1753, but he had died seven years earlier. As the city grew and the center of town shifted further west, Philadelphia needed a new public clock. According to legend, Benjamin Franklin asked his friend Edward Duffield, 1720-1803, to make a clock for public display. Franklin was owner of one of the rare and coveted pocket watches in the colonies. It was probably just a little smaller than a hockey puck. But he grew tired of being constantly stopped by workmen in the street, wishing to know the time. Duffield built the clock. He hung it outside his shop at 2nd and Arch Streets from the 1740s until the Revolutionary War. In 1753, a new public clock was installed at the Pennsylvania State House. It was at the east and the west gable ends. It was constructed by Peter Stretch's son, Thomas Stretch, 1697 to 1765. He's also interred at Friends Arch Street Meeting House. Thomas had moved his father's business to Second and Chestnut. Thomas was one of the founders of the legendary State in Schuylkill Fishing Club, the oldest continuous sporting club in the world and home of the infamous Fish House Punch. When David Rittenhouse moved from Germantown to Philadelphia in 1770, clock making continued to be his chief source of income. Rittenhouse made approximately 75 clocks in his lifetime and in a distinctly Pennsylvania tradition, each was unique. He used native woods, cherry, walnut, maple, as well as mahogany imported from the West Indies. Now, while it was common for clockmakers to put their name on the clock face or the dials, it was rare for cabinet makers to do so. Thomas Jefferson described a Rittenhouse orrery, a mechanical model of the solar system. Jefferson said it was, quote, a machine far surpassing in ingenuity of contrivance, accuracy, and utility anything of the kind ever before constructed. He has indeed made a world, but by imitation approached nearer its maker than any man who has lived from the creation to this day. More about the orrery in a few minutes. Rittenhouse has been reinterred at Laurel Hill East, and I will talk much more about him in an upcoming podcast about the transit of Venus. 
The other father and son team to make names for themselves are Henry and Thomas Voigt, V-O-I-G-T. Sometimes it was spelled V-O-I-G-H-T. Both Henry and Thomas were good friends with Thomas Jefferson. Henry Voigt, 1738-1814, was another of the many polymaths extant in Philadelphia during colonial days. He immigrated to Pennsylvania from his native Saxony around 1760. He was a clockmaker, mathematical instrument maker, inventor, and a pioneer in steam-powered boats. He was also, as I briefly mentioned in last month's All Bones Considered, the first coiner at the U.S. Mint. He opened his clockmaking shop on 2nd Street between Vine and Race in the early 1780s, and he soon developed friendship with the inventor John Fitch. Fitch described Henry as, quote, a plain Dutchman who fears no man and will always speak his sentiments, which has given offense to some of the members of our company, and some of them have affected to have a contemptible opinion of his philosophic abilities. It is true, he's not a man of letters or mathematical knowledge, but for my own part, would rather depend on him more than a Franklin, a Rittenhouse, an Ellicott, a Nancaro, and Matlack all combined, as he is a man of superior mechanical abilities. End quote. Fitch had heard of an efficient steam engine developed by James Watt in Scotland in the late 1770s. But there was not a single Watt engine in America at that time, nor would there be for many years, because Britain would not allow the export of any new technology to its former colony. Fitch decided to design his own version of a steam engine. So when he moved to Philadelphia, he engaged Henry Voigt to help him build a working model and to place it on a boat. In 1786, near Philadelphia, Fitch and Voigt constructed and tested the first operational steamship in this country, a 10-meter-long vehicle with a stern paddle wheel. Fitch and Voigt's experimental steamboat was weak, slow, and difficult to steer. But their ideas were adopted by Robert Fulton, who turned steamboats into a profitable venture two decades later. Fitch and Voigt joined together with a few friends in 1790 to try and establish a new religion called the Universal Society, in which good works would be inspired by a sense of honor rather than by supernatural suspicions and fears. Persons of all faith were accepted, as well as agnostics and atheists. Although plans and debates concerning all fundamental questions of life that could be raised, the local group was a failure. Universalism in general, however, was a successful religion, and years later it combined with Unitarianism. In a letter to George Washington, dated 26 February 1790, Fitch and Voigt both applied for jobs in the new United States Mint. Voigt described himself as, quote, "...in his younger years worked in a mint in Germany, and is fully acquainted with every process relative to coinage." that we are capable of the task, and that our best endeavors will be exerted to give you and our country satisfaction. 
Should Your Excellency be satisfied that the sacrifices which we have made will recommend us to the patronage of yourself and country, and would give us an appointment to superintend said business, your petitioners, as in duty bound, shall ever pray. End quote. Voigt claimed that because of his prior experience at the Mint in Saxony, he was perfectly acquainted with all machinery and processing of coining, and even capable of making the necessary instruments himself. Voigt got the job as first chief coiner at the U.S. Mint. Fitch was offered no position. His boss as director of the Mint was his old friend David Rittenhouse. Henry was married to Margaret Voigt, and they had seven children. But he also had an illicit affair with the widow and landlady, Mrs. Mary Kraft, and she gave birth to two children by him. Fitch decided to save Mrs. Kraft's reputation by marrying her, and this caused a break in the Fitch-Voigt partnership. When David Rittenhouse built his orrery in 1770, Henry Voigt was one of his helpers. An orrery is a mechanical model of the solar system, or a miniature planetarium. It uses a clock-like mechanism to show the position of the planets to the sun at any given time during history. It got its name from the first owner of one, Charles Boyle, the fourth Earl of Orrery. Rittenhouse's orrery earned him an honorary degree from the College of New Jersey, now Princeton University, and the college acquired ownership. In 1806, Henry Voigt was hired to repair and extend the orrery, which had been damaged during the War for Independence. There is an inscription on the face of the orrery. Invented by David Rittenhouse, A.D. 1768. Repaired and extended by Henry Voigt, A.D. 1806, both of Philadelphia. On the backside is the name Thomas Voigt, Henry's son who assisted in the work under Henry's direction. There is a second Rittenhouse orrery at the University of Pennsylvania Van Pelt Dietrich Library's Kislak Center for Special Collections, Rare Books, and Manuscripts. I will talk about that more when I get to the David Rittenhouse podcast. Now, at the time of the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, Surveyor General Isaac Briggs asked Andrew Ellicott for his transit and equal altitude instrument. In other words, a theodolite. I talked about theodolite when I talked about Ferdinand Hassler. They were going to use it to survey the 828,000 square miles of newly acquired territory. Ellicott refused to sell his instruments. So Briggs turned to Henry Voigt to make it from scratch. Briggs used the Voigt theodolite in 1804 to establish a prime meridian for the United States running through Washington, D.C., and then he took it with him to the new territory. This theodolite has the inscription, Henry Voigt, Philadelphia. It is now in the collection of the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. Henry Voigt's skills as a clock and watchmaker were highly sought by Thomas Jefferson, and the two exchanged many letters until Henry's death in 1814. He was initially interred at the first German Reformed burial grounds at 200 North 6th Street, but his remains were moved to Laurel Hill East, Section L, in 1838. When the clockmaking and repairing business passed to Henry's son, Thomas Voigt, 
Mr. Jefferson remained a loyal customer. Thomas was born in the year that his father built the engine for John Fitch's steamboat. He grew up as his father's apprentice, and they moved their shop to a location across from the U.S. Mint on 7th Street. Thomas married Maria Kessler, who was a granddaughter of German immigrants, Mary Richauer and Leonard Kessler, daughter of Michael Kessler and niece of naval historian John Kessler. In 1778, Thomas Jefferson began looking for an accurate timepiece that he could use in his astronomical observations. But his search was delayed by the Revolutionary War and eight years as Secretary of State, four years as Vice President, and then eight years as President of the United States. When he got back on track in his timekeeping quest, he asked the second director of the U.S. Mint at Philadelphia, Robert Patterson, for a recommendation. Patterson recommended Thomas Voigt, and Jefferson was delighted with his choice as he fondly remembered the years he had trusted Thomas's father with his timepieces. Jefferson ordered a tall case clock with advanced timekeeping precision that would support his study of lunar and solar cycles. Thomas Voigt completed Jefferson's astronomical case clock in 1812, but because of the War of 1812, he was unable to deliver the finished clock to Monticello until December 1815. It was 94 inches tall, 18 inches wide, and 11 inches deep. There was no striking mechanism, and its single pendulum and single weight construction allowed it to operate for eight days without being rewound. Voigt's clock is a beautiful machine, a multi-layered polished mahogany structure with a dial decorated with gilt and black lunettes. Its cost of $115.50 was nearly twice the original estimate but Jefferson gladly paid the excess. Jefferson placed the eight-day clock in his private suite of rooms, and he used it in his studies until his death on July 4, 1826. After Jefferson's death, his daughter, Martha Jefferson Randolph, needed to sell some of her father's assets to pay his debts. Dr. Robley Dunglinson, professor of medicine at the University of Virginia, had attended Thomas Jefferson in the period preceding his death and was presented the astronomical case clock for his medical devotion to President Jefferson in the final period of his life. There was a small brass plate affixed to the top right rear of the clock's interior that reads, Clock of President Jefferson, Gift of Daughter Mrs. Randolph to Dr. Dunglinson, 1826. When Dunglinson died in 1869, the clock passed on to his son. Dunglinson is buried at Laurel Hill East, Section B. I did a podcast about him a couple of years ago. This astronomical case clock remained in the Dunglinson family until 1894, when his son, William Latham Dunglinson, donated it to the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. In 1999, the Thomas Jefferson Foundation purchased the clock from the Historical Society for an undisclosed sum and returned it to President Jefferson's study at Monticello, where you can see it today. In 1815, the U.S. Senate placed an order with Thomas for a clock for its chambers. 
The next year, Voigt delivered the clock to the U.S. Senate, which was operating in temporary quarters while the U.S. Capitol was being rebuilt from the damage incurred during the War of 1812. The clock's front has a beautiful carving of a shield with 17 stars and 17 stripes, so it picked up the nickname the Ohio Clock. Ohio was admitted to the Union as the 17th state in 1803. When the Capitol was restored in 1819, the Voigt Clock, now called the Ohio Clock, was positioned in the Senate chamber. Some people speculate that the choice of 17 stars and stripes was because Ohio was the only state to enter the Union during the administration of Thomas Jefferson. When a new Senate chamber was constructed in 1859, the Ohio clock was placed opposite the main entrance to the new Senate chamber. You can see it there today. The clock has made news a couple of times in the last several years. Once in 1983, when there was a bomb explosion outside the Senate that shattered its glass. And again in 2013, when during a government shutdown, the person whose duty was to wind the clock was furloughed and the clock stopped. The Ohio clock, with Thomas Voigt's name on the clock face, has stood guard in the U.S. Senate for more than 200 years. Thomas Voigt died in August of 1844. He was 57 years old. He was interred in the family plot at Laurel Hill East in Section L. His legacy lives on at Monticello and at the U.S. Capitol Building whenever someone looks at one of his clocks to determine the time. Changes, changes, changes. You probably noticed the name change in the introduction to the podcast today. Laurel Hill Cemetery is now Laurel Hill East. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is now Laurel Hill West. There is finally one website at laurelhillphl.com. And I do hope you noticed the new theme song, Names at Peace, written and performed by local artist James Harrow. I apologize for not following the script I laid out for this month. That's just another example of change, I guess. Eventually, I promise, I will talk about David Rittenhouse, Hugh Craig Jr., the bell tower at Laurel Hill West. It just won't be in this edition. Okay, I want to tell you about some stuff coming up at Laurel Hill. First, a reminder, as a member of Friends of Laurel Hill, you will get a discount on all of these tours And you get a discount in the gift shop at the gatehouse at Laurel Hill East. Plus, as a member, you get two additional podcasts per year. So what is coming up in October? Holy cow. This is a full schedule. This is a very full schedule. Let's start with the the Hotspots Tours at Laurel Hill East. uh, That's a general tour, an introductory tour. Uh, Saturday the 8th, Hotspots and Storied Plots, 10 a.m. at Laurel Hill East. Let's see, Thursday the 20th, 10 a.m. Laurel Hill East. Friday the 28th, 10 a.m. at Laurel Hill East. There is going to be one Sacred Spaces and Storied Places. That's the Laurel Hill West introductory tour. That's on Saturday, October 22nd at 10 a.m. Okay, what about special events? Hang on to your hat. 
Saturday the 1st is the Rest in Peace 5K. 5 p.m. Laurel Hill East. I think the time to register is past. If you have registered, welcome. I will see you there. I'll be taking tickets. Uh, Sunday, October 2nd at 1 p.m., there's an accessible Hot Spots and Storied Plots tour. That means we do not leave the paved path. It is designed specifically for people with mobility issues, people in wheelchairs, people pushing strollers. And I believe that is my tour. <laughs> I don't have my cal calendar in front of me, but I think I am giving that tour. I do know that I'm giving tours at the Soul Crawl Halloween History Tours on Friday and Saturday, October 7th and 8th. 7 p.m., Laurel Hill East. You will have a ball. And we have refreshments after that. Traditionally, I am the last one to leave the gatehouse. Um, I wait for stragglers. I wait to see if there are any people with mobility issues. And then I am the last one to take off. So we probably will not leave the gatehouse until at least 7.30. Don't be much later than that, though. A lot of people think that just because we're there from... 7 until 10 or so they can come any time and pick up a tour. Well, you can get on a tour, but you're not going to get the full tour unless you're there between 7 and 7.30. And parking is always miserable for that. So consider using public transportation. Now, what are the special two? Oh, and Gravedigger's Ball, the biggie. Gravedigger's Ball is on Friday the 21st, 7 p.m. at the Masonic Temple. This is the annual fundraiser gala. In other words, you got to dress up for it. Either you got to dress up real nice or you got to dress up in a costume and you will have a ball. There are different levels you can buy in at, um, but it is an all evening extravaganza and you will see a lot of people in wonderful costumes. That is the 21st, the Gravedigger's Ball. Okay, special tours. Uh, ba -ba -bum. Here we go. Sunday the 9th, Dearly Yet Oddly Departed Walking Tour. That's 1 p.m. at Laurel Hill East. A great one here. Sunday the 23rd. Sign up for this one. The Worlds of Thomas Jefferson at Laurel Hill. That's 1 p.m. at Laurel Hill East. We have a Jefferson interpreter from Monticello who is a Philadelphian, and he comes and he gives this tour every year. And every year it gets a little bit better, and I learn a little bit more. If you heard the Friends of Thomas Jefferson podcast a few months ago, I got those names from going on Bill's tour. I did the research myself, but I learned about the people from Bill on his tour. Oh, yeah, and there's another good one on the 29th, the Nevermore Tour. Edgar Allan Poe's Laurel Hill Connections, 1 o'clock, Saturday the 29th. That one is going to sell out. I think, I think I can guarantee that that one will sell out. So please, please sign up for that one early if you want to see it. Russ Dodge is the guide on that. He's going to do a terrific job. Uh, what have I missed? True Tales from the Tombs. Uh, we're moving that to West this year. This is where you walk around to different sites in the cemetery, and actors will present stories about people who were buried there. It's very entertaining. It's educational. It's timed ticketing from 6.30 until late. I will be there helping guide people from spot to spot in the cemetery. 
And there is a fall foliage tour at 1 p.m. on Laurel Hill West, uh, the Arboretum. And Aaron Greenberg, our horticulturalist, will walk you around on that, and you will learn a lot about about the uh, the plants at Laurel Hill West. No doubt about that. Okay, did I miss anything? Doesn't look like it. Oh, Boneyard Bookworms, the free book club meeting. The book is Bewilderment by Richard Powers. That is Thursday, October 27th, 6 p.m. at Laurel Hill West. We don't have any virtual tours scheduled for October. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. Isaiah Quinby Lukens was born 24 August 1779 in Horsham, Pennsylvania. He was the son of Seneca Lukens, the great-grandson of Jan Lukin, who arrived here in 1682 and was one of the first settlers in Germantown. Seneca Lukens was a clockmaker with a shop near his home on the west side of Easton Road, just north of Maple Avenue. Like Rittenhouse and the Voigts, Lukens was another polymath. As an apprentice, young Lukens invented and adapted devices, from clocks to windmills to air-powered guns. His passion for hunting with air guns and making them is part of one of the great debates in American gun-making history. There's controversy among gun historians about whether Lukens produced the air-powered rifle called Great Medicine that Lewis and Clark took on their trip across the country to impress the native peoples. In 1804, William Clark wrote, We showed them many curiosities and the air gun, which they were much astonished at. A Lukens air gun that gun historian Henry Stewart believes went with Meriwether Lewis is now in the Henry Stewart Collection of Antique Firearms at Virginia Military Institute. The Pentagon, however, has another air gun in its collection, a Giardini, that is also said to be from the expedition. As early as 1811, Lukens also had a shop in Philadelphia at 173 High Street, now Market Street. His reputation preceded him, and people went to his shop for his clocks and other inventions. In Podcast 28, Bad Science, I talked about Charles Redheffer and his perpetual motion machine, which was debunked by Coleman Sellers in 1812, when he had Isaiah Lukens build him an apparent perpetual motion machine. Rubens Peel, George Sellers' uncle and son of Charles Wilson Peel, was operating the Elder Peel's Museum and commissioned Lukens to create a model of Red Heifer's machine. It ran with a hidden clockwork that transmitted power from outside. Old Moses, a worker at the museum, was in charge of daily winding the clockwork that ran the machine. Now, when Red Heifer saw Lukens' machine, he thought that Lukens had perfected his own ideas and offered him a partnership to exhibit the device. But Lukens said it now belonged to Peel. They did not market it as a perpetual motion machine, but only as a model of one that Red Heifer claimed to be in perpetual motion. The Lukens device soon became more popular and Red Heifer got upset at the loss of his business. He was actually charging a fee to let people look at his device, but just from a distance. Lukens' machine is in the collection of the Franklin Institute, 
of which he was a founding member in 1824. He was actually elected vice president in the first election. He was also elected as first chairman of its Committee on Science and the Arts. When given a written description of a magnetoelectric machine, he built two of them. One is at the Franklin Institute. Lukens went to Europe from 1825 to 1828, trying to sell surgical instruments of his own invention and working as a clockmaker. When he returned to Philadelphia, he opened a clock shop at 305 High Street. He was almost immediately hired to make clocks for public buildings. One of Lukens' first clock commissions was for the Lawler Academy in Horsham. It was installed one year after the Academy opened in 1811. It is a seven-day clock with a bell in the tower that rings hourly. Robert Lawler, 1740-1808, was an educator and a patriot who fought at the battles of Trenton, Princeton, and Germantown. His Academy became Hatboro's Borough Hall in the 1950s and underwent restoration in 2015. Lukens' clock is still there. Isaiah Lukens may be best known for the clock he made for the Pennsylvania State House, later to be called Independence Hall in 1828. This clock had four copper dials, each one measuring eight feet in diameter. It was the first four-faced steeple clock in the Tower of Independence Hall. Prior to 1824, there was really not much reverence or regard for the State House. The change in designation from State House to Independence Hall began about the time of Lafayette's visit to America. It's closely linked with the evolution of the building as a national shrine. Remember that before this, it had been used as a Chinese museum. It had been used as a place for uh, Charles Wilson Peel to exhibit some of his findings. It was the visit of the Marquis de Lafayette to Philadelphia that awakened an interest in the building, which has persisted to this day. So in 1828, the city council obtained plans and estimates to rebuild the wooden steeple, which had been removed in 1781. After heated discussions, William Strickland's design for the new steeple was accepted, a large bell to be cast by John Wilbank was ordered, and... Isaiah Lukens was commissioned to construct a steeple clock. Work was completed on the project during the summer of 1828. Lukens was reportedly paid $5,000 for the clock. Strickland's steeple was not an exact replica of the original, but it followed the general design of its predecessor. The principal deviations were the installation of a clock in the steeple and the use of more ornamentation. Lucan's clock stayed in the Independence Hall steeple for 48 years. In the year of the centennial celebration, the Lucan's clock was replaced. You're going to hear about that in the next section on Adam and Henry Sabert. Germantown Town Hall, which had been built in 1854, was the next home for the Lucan's clock in 1878. Old Town Hall, as it was known, was demolished in 1920 and a new town hall was built at 5928 Germantown Avenue. It's just across from Germantown High School. And the clock was reinstalled. You can see the Lukens clock today as you travel along Germantown. In 1825, Lukens received $50 for a clock he built for Germantown Academy. 
I can find no record of this clock's current location. The famed belfry, which is the symbol of Germantown Academy, has a bell tower, but there is no clock visible, so it's probably either a long clock or a shelf clock. And if you're a high school musical buff, you know that Germantown Academy's well-thought-of theater group is known as the Belfry Club. It's named for that belfry with the bell tower. The original Christ Church in Norfolk, Virginia burned down in 1827, and the congregation decided to add a bell and clock to the steeple when they rebuilt. They ordered the clock from Isaiah Lukens. It was delivered in November 1829 at a price of $863.63. The clock quickly came to be used for keeping time and schedules in the town. In 1865, a salaried timekeeper was appointed to keep the clock running. But in 1904, the council failed to appoint one, and the clock stopped. Christ Church later moved to a new building, which would not accommodate the clock. And in 1919, they donated it to the College of William and Mary, where it resides in the Sir Christopher Wren Building, the oldest college building still standing in the United States, and the oldest of the restored public buildings in Williamsburg. It was constructed between 1695 and 1700, before Williamsburg was founded. The Lukens clock from Norfolk has an inscription on the frame that says, Isaiah Lukens, Philadelphia, November 12, 1820. For more than a century, members and visitors at the Athenaeum on Washington Square have admired Isaiah Lucan's towering clock that dominates the newsroom. In 1897, this inscription was placed on the interiors of the case door. This clock was made by Isaiah Lucan's, a well-known clockmaker of about 50 years ago, for the Philadelphia Bank, where it remained until the bank removed June 30, 1859, from the old building at the southwest corner of Chestnut and 4th Street to its present quarters when it was exposed at public sales by M. Thomas and Sons auctioneers and bought by Henry Byrd, librarian of the Athenaeum, for $23. Librarian Henry Byrd, of course, is interred at Laurel Hill East in Section I. This tall Lucan's clock towers 13 feet high. It has a great carved hood door. It has carved scrolls supporting the hood. It can be found in the bush room on the second floor at the Athenaeum. Lucan's skill working with the small precision pieces used in clock making were also valuable in making his surgical instruments. While he was living in England in 1825, he was awarded a patent on an improvement to a device called a lithotriptor designed to destroy bladder stones without surgery. This device consisted of a thin silver tube which was inserted through the urethra into the bladder. A second tube is inserted through the first which includes several prongs that open into the bladder and then grab the stone. And a small drill or file is then sent through the tube to pulverize the stone. Finally, between 1830 and 1840, Isaac Lukens developed what was probably the first modern odometer. One of these was purchased from Lukens' estate in 1847 and used for more than 40 years by Mr. Town and his son. 
He was presented to the Franklin Institute in 1921. In addition to his clockwork and his inventions, he was another polymath. He collected specimens of Sixidia opaca, a member of the family Achillidae. And he was one of three members of the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia who nominated John James Audubon for membership in 1824. Lukens died in 1846. He is interred at Laurel Hill East, not far from Robley Douglinson in Section D, and not far from the gatehouse. Now, so far I've talked about the two clockmakers associated with the bell tower and the clock at what is now Independence Hall, Thomas Stretch and Isaiah Lukens. Those clocks served the site and the city well until the 1870s. But then preparations started for the country's centennial celebration. The third clock and bell, which are installed for those 1876 festivities, are still in use nearly 150 years later. And they have another strong Laurel Hill East connection, the Sabert family, Father Adam and son Henry. Adam Sabert, S-E-Y-B-E-R-T, born in 1773, received a medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania when he was 20 years old. He spent the next four years studying at London, Edinburgh, and Paris, where he also learned mineralogy and crystallography, which gave him a second career. He was the first American to study at Göttingen, founded in 1737 in Lower Saxony. And when he returned to the Philadelphia, Adam was admitted to membership in the American Philosophical Society at age 24. Adam Sabert lived at 191 North 2nd Street. He had a laboratory just down the street at 168, and there he manufactured the nation's first mercury compounds. In 1802, he bought an apothecary shop at 114 High Street, and he was listed as druggist in the city directory until 1811. Adam was acknowledged at the time as having the finest collection of minerals in the United States. He kept them in a specially built mahogany cabinet. In 1812, the newly founded Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia scraped together enough funds to make their first major purchase for their collection, Adam Sabert's Mineral Collection. They paid the astounding sum of $750, but that Sabert collection and the case are on display to this day. In 1809, Adam turned his attention to politics. He was elected to complete the term of Benjamin Say as a congressman in the 11th Congress. He was re-elected in the 12th, 13th, and 15th Congresses. During the War of 1812, Adam manufactured much of the potassium nitrate needed for making gunpowder for the country. He was also assigned the duty of determining what to do with the enemy flags captured in battle. In 1798, Adam Sabert married Maria Sarah Pepper, daughter of Philadelphia brewer Henry Pepper, 1739-1809, whose offspring were doctors and lawyers whose impact on Philadelphia was immeasurable. 
and who are interred all over Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West. More than 65 when I counted recently, including, of course, Dr. Pepper and Sergeant Pepper. Henry Pepper's gravestone is in section L, lots 119 to 125. There's a large statue of an archangel carved by John Lackmer hovering over the family plot. Lackmer was also the sculptor for the Patterson Lion on Millionaire's Row. Laurel Hill Cemetery purchased what is now the central portion of the cemetery in 1861 from the estate of George Pepper, son of Henry. Henry was already buried there along with other family members, so Laurel Hill built its cemetery around the Pepper family plot. On 23 December 1801, Maria Pepper Sabert died giving birth to Henry Sabert, who was named for her father. Adam never remarried, and he became both father and mother to the young Henry. He took Henry with him everywhere and tried to teach him everything that he knew. He sent Henry to a coal de mines in Paris, where Adam had learned so much about mineralogy. Fresh from his updated education, Henry now became the acknowledged mineral expert in the United States. And in January 1824, Henry Sabert, aged 22 years and three weeks, was made a member of the American Philosophical Society. After Henry read a paper on chrysoberyls at the Society, father and son sailed for Paris. Adam Sabert died in the City of Lights on 2 May 1825 and he was buried at the first garden cemetery in the world, Père Lachaise. After his father's death, Henry rapidly lost interest in minerals and crystals, although fellow scientist Thomas Green Clemson, 1807-1888, discovered a new species of mineral in New Jersey, which he named Sabertite. Clemson, a Philadelphian whose parents are buried at Laurel Hill East in Section G, went on to join the Confederate Army during the Civil War, and he left money in his will for the founding of the Clemson Agricultural College of South Carolina, now simply known as Clemson University. Adam had left Henry $300,000 in his will, enough so that he did not have to work for the rest of his life. Adam's death affected him greatly. He took comfort from the Bible, although he was disturbed by the passage, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Henry consulted prelates both here and in France, but was assured that that scripture only applied to the sinful rich, and that as long as he distributed his money to the less fortunate, he would be fine. Henry never married. He had very few close friends. His best friend was Moncure Robinson, 1802-1891. He's interred at Laurel Hill East, Section G. They had met in Paris shortly after Adam's death and remained friends for more than half a century. But Henry never got over the death of his father. He was reluctant to leave his gravesite for long periods. He would go to Paris every few years primarily to spend time at Père Lachaise Cemetery. It was on one of those trips that he learned about spiritualism, and when he returned to the States, he discovered the American version of the religion of modern spiritualism. By 1855, there were a purported two million spiritualists in America.
Spiritualists believed that one's personality and power of communication are not terminated by death, but could be activated with the help of a medium. I talked about the original American mediums, Maggie Fox and her sisters, way back in podcast number two. Henry was drawn to this philosophy, believing that it provided him with a way to talk with his dead parents. His decision to purchase a family plot at Laurel Hill East in 1851, just a few feet from Old Mortality and his pony in Section D, may have been influenced by a spiritualist. After moving among boarding houses in New York, Paris, and Philadelphia for many years, Henry finally settled in Center City, first at 11th and Chestnut, and then at 926 Walnut. In the early 1860s, Henry decided that he would donate a bell and a clock to the tower at Independence Hall, and he started a private subscription service. The first $2 he collected for the project were donated by President Abraham Lincoln and Secretary of State William H. Seward. But despite Sabert's best efforts, the project fell apart. About 10 years later, Philadelphians were excited about the approaching centennial celebration, and Henry again brought up the plan for the new bell and clock. This time he decided to pay for the project by himself. On 5 April 1875, he wrote a letter to the select and common councils of the city of Philadelphia and promised to pay for a large bell and clock for the Independence Hall steeple. The city almost turned him down when they found out that Henry made that decision based on a conversation with his mother, who had died 73 years earlier. But they went ahead and accepted it. The new bell was to weigh 13,000 pounds, a thousand pounds for each of the original colonies. It was to be 78% Atlantic Mines Lake Superior copper and 22% tin. Also fused in were 100 pounds of metal from each of four cannons, one from the American side and one from the British side that had been used at the Battle of Saratoga, and one each from the Union Army and the Confederate Army that had been used at Gettysburg. Two biblical phrases were inscribed. From the Old Testament, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. From the New Testament, he chose glory to God in the highest, and on earth goodwill toward men. Sabert's bell rang for the first time as the clock struck midnight leading into the 4th of July, 1876. Many years later, Philadelphia Orchestra conductor Leopold Stokowski said in an interview that the Independence Hall bell produced the most musical tone in the world. The clock that Henry Sabert ordered, which also remains in the steeple of Independence Hall until this day, is also huge. Henry consulted W.E. Harper of 407 Chestnut Street, a clockmaker and local representative for the Seth Thomas Clock Company of Thomaston, Connecticut. This company had the best reputation in the country for reliable tower clocks. Henry paid the company $6,000 over three installments for the largest Seth Thomas clock made in the United States up until that time. The gravity escapement clock weighs 6,000 pounds. That means the steeple in Independence Hall 
is holding about 10 tons of metal more than 150 feet above the ground. For comparison, the clock at City Hall weighs 50 tons and is 362 feet above Broad and Market Streets. Independence Hall's clock has a cast iron frame. It's about 10 feet long and 8 feet wide. There's a small dial clock on the inside of the tower that reflects the time on the four clock faces, each of which is about 10 feet in diameter. The dials were originally lit at night by five gas jets. The fan, which slows down the rate at which the bell is struck by the clapper, is about five feet in diameter, and several of its cogwheels are more than four feet in diameter. The enormous pendulum is 14 feet long, weighs 750 pounds, and takes two seconds to swing in one direction. But once set in motion, it runs for 12 hours without any pressure being applied from the works. The time works are run by a weight of 750 pounds. The striking works are run by two weights of 1,750 pounds each. These weights are enclosed within boxes about 20 inches square and suspended on ropes or cables which run from the clock tower to the basement. I wasn't really sure how to visualize this until I was at Laurel Hill West yesterday on a tour that was given about brewers and breweries by Mike Lewandowski. And I wandered over to the clock tower, which no longer has a clock, but it still has a bell. And I saw this wooden box hanging down from the ceiling, probably 10 feet. And it dawned on me, those are the weights. Those are the weights that make that clock function. Now the downside about this weight apparatus is that once a week, someone had to crank more than two tons of weights from the basement of Independence Hall back up to the bell tower. It was not until the sesquicentennial celebration in 1926 that an electric winding mechanism was added by William A. Heine, 1880 to 1976, a Philadelphia clockmaker who fittingly died in the bicentennial year, and his final resting place is Laurel Hill West in the Garden of Memories. Heine also installed a synchronous motor for driving the Lucan's clock, on the belfry of the town hall in Germantown. That's the same clock that had served Independence Hall the prior 47 years. Henry Sabert was still rich, and he started thinking about what else he wanted his legacy to be. In 1880, he was 79 years old, he wore a new pair of boots to a dinner party, and it pressed so badly on a bunion that his foot became grossly swollen. And then the wound got worse instead of healing and Henry decided that his life was drawing to a close, and he needed to make some decisions about the final disposition of his fortune and his body. Now, he decided to have the bodies of his parents transferred to his plot at Laurel Hill East, and then when he died, he was to be cremated and have his ashes scattered over their grave. The inscriptions on the stone indicate that his mother and father are buried at Laurel Hill East. In fact, it's a poignant stone because you see his mother's date of death is Henry's date of birth. Remember, she died in childbirth. However, when I check with the archives and I talk with the historians at the cemetery, there is no proof that Adam's body was ever moved from Paris. 
and they believe it may still be at Père Lachaise, 197 years after he was buried there. However, it is being researched more than 170 years after the purchase of the plot. And uh, one of the historians who actually speaks French uh, will be getting in touch with Père Lachaise, trying to figure out where Adam Sabert is, whether he is still in Paris or whether he really is here at Laurel Hill. Henry was 81 years old when he died in 1883. His obituary in the Philadelphia Times seemed to confirm that both of his parents were interred in the plot. When Henry's remains were cremated, they were not scattered. Moncour Robinson, his best friend, decided they should go into a large urn, and there is an urn on top of the central monument in the plot. There are a lot of urns at Laurel Hill cemeteries. If you've been there, you know it's a common symbol in Victorian cemeteries. But as far as we know, this is the only urn in the cemetery that actually contains the ashes of the person buried there. Henry's will was dated 25 December 1882, Christmas Day less than three months before his death. His cabinet of minerals went to the American Philosophical Society. His oil paintings and other art objects went to the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, although a quick search of their online catalog does not find his name. Remember, there was no Philadelphia Art Museum back in 1882. Now, cash bequests. The largest number of cash bequests was made to Philadelphia's charitable institutions. Seventeen of them received $2,000 each, 40 others received $1,000 each. You look at this list, and it's as though he had looked at a list of charitable institutions in the Philadelphia City Directory, and then just copied them down and put a number behind them. He did the same for 79 welfare agencies covering all aspects of 19th century Philadelphia society. Plaques, immigrants, Native Americans, fallen women, prisoners, the aged, the sick, there were also 82 bequests to individuals, both relatives and friends, for anywhere from $300 to $2,000. Hundreds of people and organizations benefited from his will. His biggest contributions were $60,000 each. One was to maintain a new department or ward for the treatment of chronic diseases at the University Hospital. The other was reserved for the University of Pennsylvania to establish a chair of mental and moral philosophy in order to investigate the truth about spiritualism. This Sabert Commission was a scientific investigation to prove or disprove the legitimacy of spiritualism. And for four years, this 10-man group did a deep and serious investigation of the spiritual world. Its chair was Shakespearean scholar Horace Howard Furness, interred at Laurel Hill East in Section T. His wife, Helen Kate Rogers Furness, had died only a few months earlier, at age 46. Furness desperately wanted spiritualism to be true, so he could communicate with his wife, who has a stained glass dedicated to her at the First Unitarian Church at 21st and Chestnut. Horace felt the pain of Helen's loss so much that he requested in his will that when he was buried in the family plot, the left side of Helen's coffin and the right side of his coffin should be removed 
and the coffins pushed close together in the vault. Helen's brother, Fairman Rogers, was an accomplished engineer and educator who served as chair of instruction at PAFA from 1878 to 1883. It was Fairman Rogers who first allowed women into PAFA on equal footing with men and then who recruited the controversial Thomas Aikens as instructor. Rogers also commissioned Aikens to do a painting today known as the Fairman Rogers Four in Hand or A May Morning in the Park. It is on display in Gallery 204 of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Other members of the committee investigating spiritualism were Henry's uncle, Dr. William Pepper, president of the University of Pennsylvania, who's interred at Laurel Hill East Section J, paleontologist Joseph Leidy, writer and pioneering neurologist Silas Ware Mitchell, and several others. They investigated slate writing, spirit wrappings, movement of objects by metal power, or what we would now call telekinesis, spirit photography, and other so-called spiritual events requiring a medium or a person with special powers. The Sabre Commission published a report in 1887. It's entitled Preliminary Report of the Commission Appointed by the University of Pennsylvania to Investigate Modern Spiritualism in Accordance with the Request of the Late Henry Sabert. Its initial conclusion was, Our regret that thus far we have not been cheered in our investigations by the discovery of a single novel fact. But undeterred by this discouragement, we trust with your permission to continue them with what thoroughness our future opportunities may allow and with minds as sincerely and honestly open as heretofore to conviction. The report was published by J.B. Lippincott, Laurel Hill East, Section 9, and it was angrily denounced by spiritualists. There proved to be no sentiment for the commission to further its studies, and it quietly disbanded. You can find a PDF of the Sabert Report online. I particularly recommend the part where Dr. Horace Howard Furness, great Shakespearean scholar, used a skull that had been used in productions of Hamlet that he kept on his desk. And he challenged several mediums to give him the life story of the person that that skull had belonged to. They had all failed miserably, of course. This is the skull that you can see today at the Furness Shakespeare Library at the Van Pelt Dietrich Library on the Penn campus. Dr. Gary Hatfield serves as the current Adam Sabert Professor in Moral and Intellectual Philosophy at Penn. Thanks to the foresight of patriot, citizen, and philanthropist Henry Sabert, his good works are still to be found all over Philadelphia. The Independence Hall Clock and Bell, the Department of Moral Philosophy at Penn, and another organization I haven't even mentioned yet, the Adam and Maria Sarah Sabert Foundation for Poor Boys and Girls of Philadelphia. It was founded in 1914 as an independent foundation that makes grants to nonprofit organizations that serve disadvantaged children and youth in Philadelphia. Over the past century, it has spent millions of dollars and helped hundreds of Philadelphia children. I hope all of these good works were enough to allow Henry Sabert to pass through the eye of the needle as he intended.
October episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, will talk about ice cream. Both the Bassetts and the Briar families are represented at Laurel Hill West, and I will discuss what makes Philadelphia ice cream so special. I will even throw in a few sprinkles about the woman who first gave a recipe for making sprinkles. She called them nonpareils. Even though she's buried at Laurel Hill East, I'm going to squeeze her in on this ice cream episode. The November edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories will be about connections with one of my favorite presidents, James Abram Garfield, who was assassinated in 1881. Samuel J. Randall was a Philadelphia politician who was a serious contender for the presidential nomination in 1880 and 1884. Dr. David Hayes Agnew was a Penn surgeon summoned to Washington, D.C. to care for the president after he was shot. And eminent neurologist Dr. Charles Karsner Mills performed the post-mortem examination on Garfield's assailant, Charles Guiteau. And more, and I'll try to get a few words in about the Garfield Memorial statue on Kelly Drive. So it will be an autumn assassination vacation. Laurel Hill East is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It is an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission to walk around is free, as is parking at the tiny lot across the street. Street parking on Ridge is not recommended. If you come into the cemetery and you want to park, there is an area called Valley Green which is actually closer to the hunting park exit and that's a safe place to park it's uh, away from a lot of graves it's a circle so it's an easy turnaround it'll just put a, a couple of hundred extra feet on your stroll laurel hill west is at 225 belmont avenue in balakinwood with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower your best bet for public transportation is to take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue and then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge come up Writers Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. We are still open until 7 p.m. through the month of October both cemeteries and then we switch to 5 p.m. closing time and we'll be that way until March. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, sketch artists, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, joggers if you want to run through the cemetery, if you want to walk through the cemetery, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheel variety. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West have many tours. I read them to you back in the middle of the podcast. You can go to the website laurelhillphl.com and find out more about the upcoming tours. 
If you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you will get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill. You'll have an opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside the mausoleum visits, and at least two annual members-only podcasts of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me, joe at joelex.net. Stick around if you want to hear the references that I used for this podcast. I warn you, there are many of them. So until next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. There were about a half a dozen articles that I used for general information about clockmakers and watchmakers. Uh, the first is The Public Clock of the American Philosophical Society. It was written by Murphy D. Smith. That's from the Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society, September 1984, volume 128, number 3, pages 244 to 247. Colonial and Early American Watchmakers by Richard Newman. This is from the National Association of Watch and Clock Collectors Incorporated, and I found it online. Um, it's from the December 2010 edition of Watch and Clock Bulletin, from 692 up to 706. 19th century clock technology in Britain, the United States, and Switzerland by R.A. Church. That is from the Economic History Review, November 1975, News Series, Volume 28, Number 4, pages 616 to 630. Watchmaking, a case study in Enterprise and Change, by David S. Landis, the Business History Review, Spring 1979, Volume 53, Number 1, pages 1 through 39. Thomas Jefferson, Clock Designer, by Silvio A. Bedini. This also from the Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society, June 22, 1964, Volume 108, Number 3, pages 163 to 180. And Early Colonial Clockmakers in Philadelphia, by Carolyn Wood Stretch. You heard that last name correctly. She is a relative of that father and son stretch team that I talked about way back at the beginning of the podcast. That is from the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, 1932, volume 56, number 3, pages 225 to 235. Now for Henry and Thomas Voigt, I found an article in the archives online called History Corner, Henry Voigt, it's by Silvio A. Bedini, I mentioned him before, uh, one of his articles. And I don't know what the original site was for this. This is cached text. The um, researched 
terms that I put in were Philadelphia clockmaker Thomas Voigt and uh, came up with this article from 2004. At least that's when it was archived, was 2004. For information on Isaiah Lukens, there was an article about Joseph Saxton, Pennsylvania inventor and pioneer photographer, by Arthur M. Rung. I talked about Saxon back in the photography podcast. He was the first American to actually take a daguerreotype from the window of the U.S. Mint. This article is from Pennsylvania History, a Journal of Mid-Atlantic Studies, July 1940, Volume 7, Number 3, pages 153 to 158. There's an article called The Lucan's Odometer by Henry R. Town, with an E, and Coleman Sellers, Jr. (laughs) That should tell you right there that it's a really old article. It is. It's from 1921, Journal of the Franklin Institute, devoted to science and the mechanic arts, edited by R.B. Owens. This was volume 192, numbers 1147 to 1152, July through December 1921. I found that online at archive.com. Then there's Sister to the Liberty Bell by Louis A. Ronjoni. Source of that was Records of the American Catholic Historical Society of Philadelphia, March through December 1976, volume 87, number 1 through 4, pages 3 through 32. Elizabeth Fox's graduate thesis. It's called Light Clockwork, the Mechanical Ingenuity and Craftsmanship of Isaiah Lukens. I saw her give a virtual presentation on her thesis. It was an Athenaeum Zoom show either earlier this year or last year. Anyway, it's on YouTube. You can find Elizabeth Fox and just put Elizabeth Fox and Isaiah Lukens and uh, it'll give you the uh, the talk that she gave. Uh, her thesis, let's see, was May 2016, Furman University. And for Henry Sabert, there is a magnificent article from the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography. I probably got 90% of my material from this article. Henry Sabert and the Centennial Clock and Bell at Independence Hall. It's by Arthur H. Frazier. Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, January 1978, Volume 102, Number 1, pages 40 through 58. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you will come back next month to hear more stories about people interred at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West. Until then, this is Joe Lex. Stay safe, stay well.